We're going to read the Bible together just now. And if, you've, if you're sitting near one of the Red Pew Bibles, the heavy Pew Bibles, then you'll find this reading in the Psalms on page 543. It's just about the middle of the book, page 543. This is a song of praise, a piece of poetry. And we were praying just a moment ago about the different ways our paths can take. And, and here is a psalm that talks about two particular ways that we might live. So Psalm 1, and it's page 543, page 543 of the Psalms. Just going to read this, and we believe that this is not just uh, an ancient piece of poetry, but, but God's very word to us this evening. So Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. We trust that God will help us to understand his word to us. John's going to be looking at that with us later on in our service. Thank you, Nigel and John, for your welcome. It's good to be back in Hill Street. Uh, earlier on, Nigel read from a psalm, and I want to turn back to that psalm for a moment. Just going to read one verse, or part of a verse. The psalm begins, Blessed or happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, uh, and then it goes on to say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water. Before we come to God's word, let's take a moment to pray. Father, one more time we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us so that your word would give light to the eyes and refresh the soul and rejoice the heart. For your great name's sake. Amen. Now, I don't know too many people in the church here, perhaps a handful I've met before, uh, but I do know that there's one thing that we all have in common. doesn't matter what uh, stage of life we're at or what area of life we come from. And that is we all want to be happy. That's how we're made. It's how we are created. And we want to find our happiness in all sorts of things, maybe family or relationships or sport or study or wealth or work, whatever it may be. We, we all long for happiness. But I'm sure we'll also agree that it can prove to be quite elusive. Happiness is not all that easy to find. And it doesn't matter again uh, what station of life you come from. It's true for the rich and famous. And I just took a, a sample of the rich and famous, uh, people like John Lennon, who sought happiness not only through his music, but through mind-expanding drugs and Hindu mysticism. Uh, his song, Imagine Dreams of a World, where we can get rid of religion and, uh, and war and where there's no need for personal possessions and all the people are one. 
But in fact, John Lennon ended up a very sad and lonely recluse before his tragic death. Charles Darwin wrote this letter to a friend before he died. He said, my life has become horribly boring. I feel that I've become a withered leaf for anything except science. Now, interesting, he's quoting from this psalm which speaks about a tree whose leaf does not wither. Well, his leaf withered. Hard Hughes, the billionaire, who set himself to become the richest man in the world and succeeded. Uh, when he was asked how much more money he needed to make him happy, he said, just a little more. And he too died a recluse, terrified of germs and dependent on drugs. Marilyn Monroe, beautiful, famous, and successful. This is what she wrote. She said, I'm always uh, wishing and wanting for something, but when I get what I want, I don't want it anymore. But it's true also of ordinary folk. I still remember uh, when I lived and worked in the South, I had to uh, take part in a little thing we used to have an RTE called Nightlight. We had to do a series of little epilogues. And one evening after one of the epilogues, I had a phone call, and a young man wanted to come to see me. And he was getting married that weekend to a lovely girl. He had a good job, and in many ways, everything was going for him. But the gist of what he said to me was this. He said, John, surely there must be more to life than a weekly wage packet. He was about 24, but he didn't seem to find any joy or satisfaction in his, his life. And then another friend, let me call him Tom, that's not his name, but Tom and I shared digs together when I worked in a college. We taught together. He was a lovely guy. He sadly has died since. He was a, a real delight to be with. He was good fun, always joking. Uh, he was a party animal, and he went to a lot of parties. And uh, he also slept around a lot, and he used to laugh and joke about that. Uh, but one thing I noticed about Tom was that when he was walking to the college and coming back from the college, and nearly all of the time when he was in the house, he had his earplugs in listening to music. I said to him, Tom, why are you always listening to music? Why are the earplugs in? And this is what he said to me. He said, when I take the earplugs out, when I don't listen to music, I can't stand the silence. Because when it's silence, I start to think, and when I start to think, I get depressed. He was a really jolly lad, but deep down, depressed. Now, Psalm 1 is a study in finding happiness. And it begins by giving us two principles, and then we're going to come to the harvest pictures that it paints for us. Uh, the first principle is that the desire for happiness is a good one. We shouldn't be embarrassed about it because it's how God made us. How happy or how blessed, that's how the psalm begins. This psalm uh, is here to tell us how to find that happiness. And of course, we all find pleasure in ordinary things, don't we? It may be in a nice cream or uh, music or a good meal with friends or game of football or gardening or dancing or walking the dog, whatever it may be. And the Bible reminds us that all of these things are gifts of God. It says in the New Testament, all of these things God gave us richly to enjoy. So we're meant to delight in these good gifts of God. But do we not have this strange sense that we were made for something more than just to eat and drink and sleep and reproduce like animals, but for something deeper and more lasting? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the books, books and the music in which we thought the joy was found will betray us if we trust in them. It's not in them. 
It only came through them. There only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country not yet visited. They're only signs, they're only scents, they're only pointers to the thing itself. So the second principle the psalm gives us is this, that true happiness is not found by looking for happiness. It's the byproduct of looking for something else. It's only found in a relationship with God. That's why Jesus said in another part of the Bible, seek as of first importance the kingdom of God, and then all the other things will find their rightful place in your lives. So the pursuit of happiness is God-given, but we can't find that happiness by looking for it. We only find it in God. And that's why this psalm could be entitled, I suppose, very simply, The Two Ways. Because it sets forth for us two ways that we can live. There ultimately are only two ways that we can live. We either live a life in a relationship with God or a life turned away from God and self-will and self-determination. Or the way the psalmist puts it here, we either our thinking is being transformed by God's truth and God's word or we are conforming to the values and the fashions of secular society which mock God's word. We either belong to one of those companies or the other. We're either traveling down one route or the other. And we need to choose which we're going to travel down. And so to help us know where those two roads lead, the psalmist gives us two pictures from the harvest. He said we're either, our life is either like the chaff, that's the husks of the, the grain, or like the fruit tree that's planted by irrigation streams. So very simply, I want to present, if you like, to us three contrasts the psalm gives us between the life like the chaff and the life of the fruit tree, because they describe our lives in one way or the other. Three things about the chaff. First of all, the chaff is rootless. It has no stability. It's just a husk. It, the psalmist says it just blows away in the wind. It has nothing to hold it uh, stable. Probably many of us have heard of the, the novel Grips of Wrath by John Steinbeck, but he wrote another novel called East of Eden. And it tells of two American families, immigrants. One actually came from Northern Ireland, the Hamiltons, and it's a story of very high hopes and of lofty ideals in these family circles. They've come as immigrants to the States, but it descends into guilt and depravity and self-destruction, and it's John Steinbeck's commentary on human society as he saw it. The title, of course, uh, comes East of Eden, it's called, the, the title comes from the book of Genesis. Cain, we're told, went out from the presence of the Lord, and he dwelled east of Eden. It's a picture of a human race like Cain, without roots, wandering east of Eden, out of fellowship with God. That's the picture of the human race that we're given in this psalm. People without roots, people drifting through life, not quite sure where they belong. But we contrast that with the tree. The most important part of the tree is the bit you don't see, I suppose you could say, the, the roots, the bit under the ground. And here we have a picture of a, a fruit tree, and despite the intense heat and the drought of the Middle East, we're told that it does not wither. Why? Because it's rooted in the ground from which it draws its stability and its vitality. It's not dependent on external circumstances. It finds its strength from deep within. And that's the kind of happiness the psalmist is speaking about a security and a happiness that does not depend on what happens to us, but it depends on who we are and where we are rooted. 
And we're intended to be rooted in two senses, I think, according to the Bible. First of all, in a deep personal relationship with God. It's very interesting how the Psalms that follow reflect that deep relationship. Psalm 3, I lie down to sleep, says the psalmist. I wake again, and the Lord sustains me. Psalm 16, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And the famous Psalm 23, you lead me. Besides still waters, you restore my soul. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid because you're with me. Psalm 73, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Beautiful pictures of a man or a woman walking in relationship with God. We're meant to be rooted in God, in relationship with him. That's why we were made. But we're also meant to be rooted in God's great purposes for the world and our lives. I don't know whether, I'm sure you're not at all, I'm not interested in philosophy as such, I'm sure you're not particularly interested in it either, but people have a a fancy word that they use for the prevailing mindset of our generation. They call it postmodernism, and it tells us that uh, there is no plot or purpose to our lives. There's no big story behind them. There's just your story and my story. We all have our little individual lives, our individual story, but there's no big thing behind the the whole of it, our lives. But the Bible tells us that above and beyond our lives, there is the big story of what God is doing in his world. If you like, behind secular history, there's a, a plot line, which we might call sacred history, the story of what God is doing, his saving purposes in the world that he has made and for the people that he created. A story that flows from creation in the past to the new creation. A story that tells how God made a new beginning with the human race in the call of Abraham. And through him, he became a father to a nation in whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then through the prophets, we're looking forward to that day when God will send forth his son into the world, born of a woman. Sent to rescue and reconcile us to God and restore the world that God has made. And that purpose now continuing at present as God is calling out of all the nations a people of his very own, people who will walk in faith and obedience to him. Until that day when he will bring history to an end and when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, the one before whom we will give account, and he will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself. So behind our lives there's this great saving purpose of God. And God intended us not only to be in a deep personal relationship with him, but connected to his great purpose and to find our part in that purpose as God advances it in the world. The Christian is someone who is rooted in God and rooted in his purposes in the world. So the chaff is rootless. The fruit tree is rooted. That's a description of our lives. The second picture is the chaff is lifeless, but the tree is living. The chaff, is just, or the chaff is just the empty husk that is thrown away when the harvest is over. It's something that was once alive but is now, if you like, dead and, and lifeless. I've lived a lot of my life south of the border. Of course, it's equally true north, I suppose, but uh, I visited many of Ireland's great old residences and homes and holidays and things. And you go to these great stately homes uh, once teeming with life, but now lying lifeless and empty. And you'll see a sign outside them saying, so-and-so used to live here. 
And now people visit it in and out, but it's an empty building. And that's how the Bible describes human life without him. If you like, that inner sanctum, uh, what, what the Bible calls the soul, the inner sanctum is meant to throb with the life of God, lying lifeless and empty. It's possible that, well, of course, it's, it's necessary that we're here tonight, that we're biologically alive. But it's possible to be biologically alive and to be athletically fit and intellectually sharp and socially vivacious and religiously devout and yet spiritually dead, devoid of the inner life of God, the Holy Spirit. Here's how Paul writes to some Christians in what today we would call Turkey, a place called Ephesus. He said, you were formerly dead in your trespasses and your sins without God, separated from the life of God. That's a description of human beings as they are by nature. But the tree is living. It draws its vitality from the sap flowing from the root up to the leaves. And the Christian life is like a, a fruit tree. That's what we're told here. Or let me put it this way. It's, it's like a fruit tree and not like a Christmas tree. Religion is like a Christmas tree. A Christmas tree, you hang on the red balls on the outside. You hang them on, you take them off, they're external, they don't flow from the life of the tree because there's no life in the Christmas tree. But the red apples hanging on a, an apple tree are the outward expression of the life within. And that's what we're meant to be, indwelt by the life of God the Holy Spirit. And here's how Jesus put it, whoever believes in me and comes to me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John adds a little note. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. The chaff is lifeless. The fruit tree is living. A life within. Again, a picture of our lives. But the third picture is that the chaff is fruitless. We're told the wind simply blows it away because it's worthless. It's, it's of no value whatsoever at the harvest. The tree, the fruit tree yields its fruit in season. One of my hobbies now in retirement is planting trees. I've planted almost 1,200 trees, I suppose, over the last couple of years. Uh, not all of them are fruit trees. Of course, maybe nine or ten are fruit trees. And they can look pretty dead in winter. There's not much obvious life in them. But when the life is there, it begins to show, doesn't it, in springtime? You see the little buds appearing, the leaves, uh, and then the blossoms come, and then come harvest time, and the apples are, are ripe. And so when we have this inner life of the Holy Spirit, it will show itself. There will be evidence that it's there. The Holy Spirit produces fruits in our lives. There's a change takes place. John Wesley uh, grew up, uh, as a very rigid religious person. He became a very formal clergyman. He went as a missionary to uh, Atlanta in Georgia. He tried to convert the Indians, and he wrote home to his mom, uh, Mom, how can I convert the Indians unless I myself be converted? Because he'd been reading a book by a man called Henry Skugel, which was called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And he realized he didn't have that life. He realized he was not a Christian at all. He was a religious person, but missing that vital inner life. 
And when the life of the Holy Spirit's there, the Holy Spirit will demonstrate or manifest his presence. First of all, he creates new appetites in our lives that weren't there before. Maybe there was a time when God seemed remote and distant and dull. But when the Holy Spirit is there, there's a hunger and desire after God. So the psalmist can say, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Christian comes to church not to merely meet other people, but because they have a thirst and a hunger for fellowship with God. And the second uh, appetite, if you like, is a hunger for God's Word. This old book, the Bible, once, to, once was boring, dull. You maybe use it to press flowers in or keep photographs in. But now how, notice how the psalmist puts his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he literally, the word literally means choose the cut. He chews on it, he meditates on it, he delights in it, or she. And the third appetite is a desire for fellowship with God's people. There's that strange thing, that strange drawing as iron filings are drawn to a magnet, as Christians are drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit, they're also drawn to each other. There's that sense of belonging together. And then there is a desire for others to come to know him. We may not be very good at explaining the Christian faith. We may feel we're, we're hopeless at it. We may be shy. We may be nervous. But if the Holy Spirit is there, we will have a desire that others come to him. That's why the psalmist can say, tell among the nations that the Lord reigns. We want others to know him as well. So the Holy Spirit, when he's there, he will create these desires, that inner life. And then he will also produce what the New Testament calls the fruits of the Spirit, that increasing change of character and disposition in the kind of people that we are. Paul lists some of them love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. The Holy Spirit makes a difference. Or if I can change from a horticultural metaphor to a farming one, Martin Luther said, the cows that you milk should know that you're converted. How you treat other people, how you treat the animals, whatever it may be, the Holy Spirit makes a difference. There should be a change and a, a progressive change in our lives when the Holy Spirit is there. So here are two ways to live, like the chaff or like the fruit tree. The chaff is rootless. The fruit tree is rooted. The chaff is lifeless. The fruit tree as an inner life, and the chaff is fruitless, but the fruit tree bears fruit for the harvest. But notice how this psalm ends, because it reminds us that the harvest is also a time of separation. There comes a time when the farmer, in ancient times, he would have thrashed the corn, uh, and then it was winnowed, it was thrown up in the air, and the, the Chaff would blow away and the, the wheat or the grain or the fruit would fall to the ground. A separation. And that's the picture the Bible uses of the day of judgment. It will be a day of separation. A day when the useless chaff blows away and the fruit is gathered in. Or says the psalmist, we either belong to the assembly of the righteous, that's just the word he uses for God's people, or excluded from it. We either belong there or we don't belong there. We are either like the fruit tree or like the chaff. 
But the reason the psalmist writes is not to discourage us if we find that we're on the wrong track. It's simply because he wants us to change direction. And notice how he tells us to do that. It involves what the Bible calls conversion. It means an about turn. There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. Notice how he says how happy is the person who does not do certain things, who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or sit down with sinners and belong to them or stand uh, in the way of mockers. There's a turning away from that lifestyle and from that priority and turning to God and his word and his son and delight in him. We need to convert. We need to turn around. We need to recognize we're heading in the wrong direction and turn in the right direction, turning from self and self-will and turning to God and his son and his word. So it's a very simple psalm. It shows us two ways to live and it tells us that we need to choose. So we all want happiness, don't we? And we find it sometimes quite elusive, but the psalmist says we are not find it by seeking it. It's only when we submit to God and his purposes in Jesus that we will increasingly come to know this happiness of which he speaks, where we're saved by God's grace, where we delight in God's word, where we are walking in God's purposes, where we're bearing fruit for God's glory, where we're secure in God's care, where we're in fellowship with God's people, and where we're headed for God's presence and the assembly of heaven. So I suppose to finish this psalm, does it not give us a twofold challenge? Number one, it says to us, which picture represents our lives? Are we like the chaff or like the fruit tree? And the second question is this, if we find that we're on the wrong path, are we prepared to make that decisive change of direction and turning to God from ourselves, turning to his son, so that it can be said of us how blessed is the person whose delight is in the way of God. He or she is like a tree whose leaf will not wither. May God give us understanding of his word and obedience to it. Let's take a moment to pray. And then, Nigel, you've got the last hymn, so I'll let you announce it. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we simply ask tonight that as we have reflected upon your word, as we have sown the good seed of your word in our hearts and minds, that you will give us the grace to respond to it in faith and in obedience for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.